All right, well, good afternoon. Uh, it's good to see you all. If you came here a little after James started, uh, he was talking about how everything is being taken out of this building. And uh, I know that you probably don't miss some of the things, um, but you might be wondering why the cross was taken down um, because you can see the outline of it. And I was trying to think if like, I could make a theological kind of thing going on, like say like he is risen, you know, and the cross is gone too, and the body's also gone. Um, but really, the thing is, uh, this building, the Presbyterian Church, they, they sold it to another church, and the transition is happening right now. Uh, it hasn't, the, the sale hasn't closed yet, so there's a couple more weeks till that happens. Um, but the Presbyterian Church basically totally moved out. They took everything. They took the, the cross even. Um, so don't want that to be too much of a distraction. Um, but anyway, uh, let's get into it. First Peter 2. First Peter 2, if you're new or visiting... Uh, we want to welcome you. Um, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. And really, it's good to see all of you. Um, some of you I feel like I haven't seen since last year. Uh, sorry, that's ter- pastor jokes. Man, it's, it's terrible. Worse than dad jokes. I remember one time uh, I was leading this meeting years ago at church, and I said this, like, joke. It wasn't really a joke. And, and a few people laughed, and then my friend Justin was like, why are you guys laughing? That's not even funny. You know, it's not even a joke what he said. And I knew at that moment I had to, I had to leave and move to Texas. Like, they didn't appreciate me in my hometown. Okay, 1 Peter 2. Last week we were in 1 Peter as well. Um, and if you remember, if you were here, uh, and if you weren't here, I'll just bring you up to speed. Um, what we're doing is we're talking about the, the culture of this church. Okay, a lot of times the week in between Christmas and New Year's is kind of a dead week for churches. And then the first week of the year is like a vision message for the year, what our church is going to be doing or what we're going to be focusing on. Um, but we wanted to do something a little bit different. We wanted to talk about the culture of the church, uh, the culture that we wanted for this church. Um, but last week we flipped the script a little bit and we said that it's not really about the culture that we want. Okay, that's already kind of uh, viewing things from the wrong perspective. It's really what God wants for the church. Okay, what does God actually want the church to be like? And we define culture at its simplest level. It's what we actually do and why we actually do it. Okay, so why do we make the decisions that we make? Why does the church have this certain kind of feel? Why do we prioritize the things that we do? And we talked about how we want all of that to be shaped by the Word of God. Okay, that was last week. Now, today is the first Sunday of the year. Uh, but again, instead of a vision message, we're going to be talking about the church culture a little bit more. Uh, and really the way we see it, we're not just going to do this in the beginning of every year. We're going to do it every once in a while because we want the Bible to, to be continually shaping us. Okay, We want to be kind of injecting the truth of the scripture into the bloodstream of this church uh, whenever we need it. Okay, And maybe a little bit more than that. So First Peter 2, we're continuing this thing on church culture. Chapter 2, verse 4. I'll read a verse 10, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, 
a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of God. Let's pray together, then we'll get into it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this afternoon. We come before you on this first Sunday of the calendar year. Maybe we have different resolutions or hopes or dreams for this year, you know, God, you know our thoughts, you know our hearts. But God, I pray that as we sit before your word right now, as we think about church and we talk about the culture of this church and what we do and why we do it, God, I pray that your word would drive the discussion. I pray that your word would shape us, and I pray that we would be a church that honors you by doing what you have said, what you've told us to do. And God, we can't do that on our own, so we ask in humility, in prayer right now, that you would help us. We pray that your spirit would be applying this word, this living word, to our hearts. And I pray, God, that you would use this passage powerfully in the life of this church. God, we want to be a certain kind of church, a church that pleases you. So we pray that you'll help us to do that, to be that. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Why should I go to this church? That's what he asked me, straight up to my face. He said, sell me on Lighthouse. Right now, make the pitch go. Okay, as if I was a salesman or a monkey that he could command. Now, I want to rewind the tape a little bit. I want to give you the context of that conversation. Uh, between 2008 and 2015, I helped lead the college ministry at this church called Lighthouse, uh, kind of right outside of Los Angeles in California. That's where I'm from, uh, the city called Torrance. And uh, there were a few major universities right near Lighthouse. There's UCLA and USC and, and a few other schools. And so Lighthouse always felt like there was a good opportunity to reach out to college students on campus. And it is. It's a great outreach opportunity. And they started this college ministry. And I was leading it with Eric for a while, and then he left me. But I was leading it for these seven years. And the thing is... Um, College ministry is very interesting, I found out, after about four years, because it's cyclical. Because by nature, college keeps on, college students keep on leaving, and then new, recently graduated high school students come in, right? Like every year, the graduated seniors leave your ministry, and then new freshmen show up. So it's very strange, like you keep getting older, but the actual group never does, and you might invest in someone for four years, and all of a sudden, they're gone. But that's kind of the nature of it. So fall would roll around every year, and we'd have this um, influx of 18-year-olds checking out Lighthouse. That's what they would say, okay? Because there were a lot of options for churches in the L.A. area, okay? You might not think so, but there were quite a few good churches, at least a handful right near these colleges, and Lighthouse was one of them. So they would come check it out, 
And of course, they were checking out a bunch of other churches too. And you couldn't help but feel as these freshmen came and they're sitting there in their seats and they're meeting you and talking to you. And as the worship music is going on as, and as the sermon is being preached, that this whole time is just one big audition, right? It's kind of like the entire LA area is like a swap meet of churches and all of our churches have our little booths, you know, and our little table set up. And then all of these prospective customers are walking around seeing if you got what they want. One year, I met this particular new freshman, um, but he, unlike most, kind of, he skipped over the social niceties that most of the other freshmen would kind of put on. Like, most of them would just say, hi, you know, like, we're visiting, I'm new to, you know, college, and I'm checking out churches, like, nice to meet you. But this guy said, okay, let's just get right down to it. He was so open and transparent. It was Honestly, astonishing to me. It took me by surprise. But he just said to me, he's like, oh, you're the, you're leading this college group here. Okay. Sell me on Lighthouse. Okay. I'm looking at all these other churches. Just sell it to me. Give me the pitch right now. Go. Now, I don't remember exactly what I said. I think I just said, I'm good. Like you can go to another church. That's cool. Uh, we don't even want you. No, I, I don't, I don't think I said that. Um, I don't remember what I said. Uh, maybe I tried to, to sell it. I honestly can't remember. But I do remember what he said. In fact, I never forgot what he said. And look, I, I don't want to hate on some 18-year-old right, for one thing he said once. Right? If we were all judged by the worst thing we said as an 18-year-old, who could stand besides James Ito? I only use this exchange as an example because it happened to me, one, okay, it really happened, and two, I believe the truth is, and if you would allow me to be so bold, I believe the truth is, if we were all exposed, heart and soul, right, what we really think about, what our real attitudes are, we all sometimes view church in this way. Maybe we don't say it, maybe we don't even try to think it, it just kind of slips in, but we view church kind of as customers, right? We're the buyers, and church is a product, and we're looking to see which one is the best for us. And this attitude can manifest in a lot of different ways. It can manifest in life transition stages where we are, you know, new to an area and we're looking for churches. It can manifest maybe in kind of like a fixer-upper uh, type of mentality, right? Where you're at a church, but you're constantly thinking about, okay, well, this could be fixed, or I think that this could be a lot better, or I see a lot of potential here. And if I can just kind of, you know, push everyone in that direction, our church would be the best or whatever. It can manifest in just an attitude of discontentment, where a church is just not what you want. And, and there's a kind of a complaining spirit inside of you, where there's always things that you don't like. There's always reasons why you might want to check out another church. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? You should make a wise, informed decision. If you're new to Zoe, okay, this is probably a good week for you because this is what we're really about. But I'm not saying you got to come here. We're not the only good church. That's not my intention. I'm not trying to say that. You should make a wise, informed decision when it comes to church. You should. You should pray through it. You should think through it biblically. And you should want the church you're part of to get better. I think all of us are part of this construction process. We'll get to that. And you are free to leave a church and go to another church. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with moving on. You know, sometimes it happens in different seasons. 
Even for us, right? I was part of Lighthouse, but I'm not there anymore. And I think I left on good terms, hopefully. They haven't returned my calls in a while, but sometimes it's necessary. But I think we have to at least ask the question, do we sometimes think of the church as a product to buy? A lot of people talk about the consumer mentality that's plaguing the American evangelical church. Could we at least ask the question, am I a part of that? See, when we talk about church culture, what we do and why we do it, it's vital that we view the church rightly, that we view it as God wants us to view it. Zoe is not a perfect church by any metric or measurement, but because we have the scripture, because we have the Bible, at least we have a standard to shoot for, okay? We know where to go. And as we seek to be a more biblical church, as we seek to cultivate the culture here by sowing the word and watering with the word, we need to make sure we're on the same page before we kind of start building. We need to make sure that we're on the same page about what the church is actually supposed to be and look like at the end of it. And that's what we're going to be talking about today from First Peter. Okay, and, and, and as we look at this passage, I think you'll see that a lot of what's in this passage has actually uh, profoundly influenced the way that me and Eric and James thought of how Zoe should be or how we should try to make it be. Okay, this is one of the most important passages for me personally when it comes to how church should function. So let's get into it. So much bad church culture comes out of a misunderstanding of church. So let's go to the source. Let's go to the Bible. Let's lay that solid foundation. Three points. First point is this. Okay, the people are the point. The people are the point. Verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Okay, there is so much in these two verses. I'm just going to put that out there. Okay, we're not doing a full exposition of First Peter. I'd like to someday. But there is so much in here. There are multiple sermons worth of exegetical gold that we can mine in First Peter 2. Just the first couple of verses, the first five verses for weeks. But seeing as we can't cover everything, Let's focus our attention. Just look at the beginning of verse 4 again. Notice how Peter starts. He says, as you come to him. As you come to him, and the you is plural here in the Greek. So what's the idea? He's talking about an assembly, a gathering. Now, I don't know about you guys. I know we got a lot of homeschoolers out here who will have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, But as a kid, I went to elementary school, uh, and we would have these things called assemblies. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? You'd have your own class. Some people know, right? Uh, the worldly people like me. Just kidding. Um, but anyway, we were converted, okay? We, we've been saved. But we would have these assemblies where every single class would gather, okay? We would be called together either on the field somewhere or on the basketball court or in the cafeteria. And we would all sit there and we would watch some presentation or demonstration or hear an announcement. That was an assembly, Okay, the assembly was this thing that happened when all the people gathered around one thing. Now, if you know your Greek at all, the word for church in Greek is ekklesia. Okay, if you break it down literally, uh, it means something like the called out ones. But the standard Greek definition of ekklesia was assembly. The assembly. 
So when the church was originally called the church by Jesus, the mental picture was of an assembly, or really the assembly of the people of God gathering together around their God. So think about this. Okay, think about this. That's what church is biblically. But what do most people, including us, what do we most think of, most often think of when we hear the word church? I'm sure there are some exceptions. I'm sure some of you are like, Ecclesia, of course, I know my Greek. But think about how even we use the word church in everyday conversation. Think about when we're talking with our friends. It's like, hey, man, you know, I forgot my Bible at church. Or maybe the worship leader up front is like, hey, everyone, I want to welcome you to church. You've heard that kind of language before, right? And what that betrays, what that shows us And in my experience, this is pretty universal, is that most people commonly picture the church as either the architecture, right, the place to go, or the event, right, the performance to experience, the production to experience. Now, most churches meet somewhere, okay, I'm not saying that this is in church or that this worship service, you can't call it church. If you call it church again, we're going to church discipline you. I'm not saying that. Churches are those things in everyday language, but primarily, biblically, churches are not those things. Churches are people. Churches are the people gathered together. Now, the statement isn't at face value that controversial, I hope, and I've never found it to be controversial. I've never had someone tell me, well, actually, that's wrong. Church is not the people. So why do you think so many of us, when we hear the word church, first and foremost, think of something else? Why do you think that's the case? You know, years ago, I found a website for um, pastoral coaching. Okay, I was going to tell you what the website was, but there's no point in looking at it. Um, But it's for uh, pastoral coaching. He has a service where you can sign up for a fee and he'll coach you to be a more successful pastor. I only spent like $4,000 on it. Don't worry. No, I didn't didn't buy it. Um, But he had some freemium content. You know what I mean? He had a blog and he wrote articles uh, to help you pastor. And some of his content was good, okay? I'm not trying to, to, to poo-poo on this guy too much, but some of it was very interesting, and I think it betrayed kind of how people think about church uh, today in 21st century America, what evangelicalism is focused on. He had these series of, he had this series of articles on how to break the blank barrier. Okay, so how to break the 100 barrier, the 200 barrier, the 400 barrier, the 1,000 to infinity and beyond, right? That's basically what it was. And you know what I'm talking about, right? It was how to grow your church, how to get more people to come on Sundays. And I don't know if you know this, but pastors are really into the numbers of their church. You get a bunch of pastors together in a room and everyone's like, how's church going? And what they want to know is how many people are coming to church, right? And I'm always super annoying in these uh, discussions. I'm like, good, because, you know, people are like, yeah, it's going great. We got 100 people coming out to this. And, and I'm just like, good, period. And everyone's like, man, get this guy out of here, dude. But if I'm being honest, you know, it's something that I think about too, right? I'm just a normal person in that sense, right? I want to be successful. But pastors, they can become obsessed with this kind of thing, with the numbers. 
So this guy had these articles, and I remember clicking on it. I was like, I wonder what he says. I'm just wondering. And some of the stuff he said was actually not bad, right? He said, like, don't give up if you're discouraged. I'm like, okay, that's good advice. But a lot of what he said, most of his advice was focused on, guess what? The architecture and the event. The place to go and the production that people experience when they come to that place to go. He said, if your building is junk, you got to move. He said, that's one of the first things you got to do. And he says, you know if your building is junk. And I was like, hmm, AC doesn't work in the summer. Does that, I'm not trying to say anything bad about this building, but we kind of need AC. And then he said, stop wasting time on things like small groups. Uh, stop wasting your money on missions giving. And instead, use your time and energy and funds to make the Sunday experience better. He said, hire someone who's really good at guitar to lead songs. Just find somebody out there, not someone in your church. And he said, you got to pay them because if you don't pay them, they're not going to give their best. Now, on the one hand, I was kind of like, this is kind of terrible. But on the other hand, I was like, this is kind of real talk, right? Because he knows that this actually works and it did for him. This kind of, uh, this kind of advice, this kind of, you know, proactive planning, trying to, to be very, you know, focused on the things that will get people in. I think, I have no doubt, actually, that they do actually get people in the door. But my question at the end of this article was, but for what? Right? Like, why? Why am I doing this? Why would I want to do this? Because if you look at the Bible, are the people just the numbers? I mean, you could read the book of Numbers. There are numbers in the Bible. They do count people. But people are not just numbers. People are not just means to an end. People aren't just givers so that we could have more money to have a better experience, so that we could get more people to have more talent to have a better experience, so that we could get more money, so that we could have, you know, do you see what I'm saying? It just goes on and on and on. My question is, for what? What is the end goal of these things? And look, again, I don't want to be a hypocrite here. Of course, you know, I, I want to be successful. I wouldn't hate if our church grew bigger or, that, or if we had a better meeting space, if we actually had a cross up, you know, that would be cool. I would like AC. I would like, you know, if talented people came and they wanted to use their gifts to serve the body and serve Christ. If you wish that Zoe was a little bit less mom and poppy, you know, and just a little bit better, I understand. I think it's fine. It's just a matter of perspective and a matter of priority. And this is one of the most important things we have to understand at Zoe, especially if you want to be part of this church, that the people are first. It's about the people. We can meet anywhere. The service could be super stripped down, as James said, but that's not what Zoe is. Zoe is you guys. It's us. It's the people sitting next to you. It's the kids that are running around. It's these brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what church is. And that's what Peter says in chapter, uh, in chapter 2, verse 5. Peter uses this metaphor of a building, which can be a little confusing because, you know, we think of church as a place to go, as a building a lot of times. But understand, he's not talking about a physical building. It's not so much that the, that the church is a place that you need to fill with people. It's that the people themselves are a spiritual building. You see that? We are the living stones. We are bricks of a spiritual house. The church is people. Our church is people. That's why at Zoe, in terms of culture, relationships are a big deal. Getting to know people, 
having people in your life. It's why we leave a lot of space for people to talk after service because if you're not getting to know each other, then we're not really functioning as a people. We're just showing up for a Sunday event. It's why we have community groups, even though the advice on the blog says not to do it. It's why we have the kids call you auntie and uncle because spiritually speaking, you are because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's why we don't plug people into serving roles right away, no matter how talented or gifted. I met people who right away, I could tell that this person is so good at something. And they said, how can I serve? And I think that if I just plug them in, if I said, we need you to do this thing, maybe we could get them to stay. But I feel like that's backwards. If they're not plugged in as a person, as a living stone to this body, if they're not connected relationally, then, you know, it doesn't matter how gifted they are. They can serve later, but we don't want to use them for their gifts. All right, we want to be connected with them as a church. <clears throat> the person sitting near, uh, near you that you never met, he's a part of this church. She's a part of this church. That's what this church is. Now, of course, someone might be like a family member visiting from out of town. They're not a part of this church. You can still say hi to them, but you know what I mean. Zoe is the people. It's the people. You know, last week I said, when we were talking about church culture, I said that we met with a bunch of church planners before we started Zoe. Remember I said that? We met with all these, the pastor with no plan. I talked about him. Um, but we met with a pastor of this huge church in L.A., um, and they were, by any metric, super successful. And one of our friends from Masters, he actually was a pastoral resident in training at this church. So it was a good church. Um, and normally, I don't think like randos like me and Eric could get a, a meeting with a pastor, but because we had an in, we were able to meet with him. So we sat down with him, and I didn't know what he was going to say. I mean, he was so successful. I, I didn't know if he was going to give us some of this, like how to break the 100 barrier. Like, how do you get a 3,000-person church? This is what he said. And I never forgot what he said either. He said, don't worry so much about how to grow your church. He says, don't worry about that. He said, just focus on the people who are there. He said, so many pastors and church planners, they're always focused on the people who aren't there. How are we going to get more people in? How are we going to get people who are gifted in this way? How are we? He said, that's fine to evangelize, be faithful. But he said, look, your church is the people that God brings. Just worry about that. It's pretty good advice. I literally never forgot what he said, and it has shaped how I view church planning for the past five years. The people are the people who are there. They're the people that God brought. And you know, uh, I found out a little bit more about him. It's interesting how their church grew. It wasn't because of a grand vision or a strategy or a plan. Really what happened was they started as a tiny church in a school, and not a lot of people were coming. He said he wasn't even sure if anyone would come some weeks. He says his preaching was pretty terrible in terms of like the style. And he was preaching the Bible. Um, but all he did was preach through the book of John. They evangelized, they prayed, and they were very simple. And then he said one day this one guy came to be part of the church. And he was just part of it, right? Whoever God brings. And that guy started inviting all of his friends. And it started growing a little bit. But then what happened was, tragically, that person, that guy was killed in a car accident, I think. And it was really crazy. The church was young. Um, but what happened was, because he was part of that church and Tim had invested in his life, 
um, they asked him to do the memorial service and a bunch of his friends came, a bunch of non-Christians came and he preached the gospel and God just for some reason used that and a lot of people came to faith and that kind of sparked the explosive growth where all of these new Christians started inviting people. That's how that church grew. Pretty interesting. He said, of course, you know, he wouldn't say that he wanted that guy to die. Of course not. The point is that he was just loving this one guy. That's it. And then everything else came out of that. The church is the people, and maybe it'll grow to be a certain way, maybe it won't, but we don't need any of that to be a faithful church. We just need to be a faithful church with what we have, with who we have, with who we are. This leads to the next point. Okay, the church is the people. The people are the point. It's not the production quality necessarily. That's to serve the people. It's not the programs. That's to serve the people. But the second idea is Christ is the cornerstone. Because people are the point, right? The church is the people, but the church isn't for us. Do you see what I'm saying? Christ is the cornerstone, verse 4. And all the way to verse 8, and pay attention to who you think is the most important person in this text. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying, excuse me, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame so the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense look there's a lot in here but the main takeaway is pretty clear you and i are living stones but jesus is the cornerstone see in biblical times as it is today every building needed to have a good foundation, okay? It started with the foundation. And in those days, it started with actually one stone, the most important stone in the entire construction project, right? You had to lay the cornerstone in the corner and then everything else would be built out from there. And if the stone wasn't straight or it wasn't good, then the house would be crooked, the foundation wouldn't work, et cetera, et cetera. Now, there's a lot, again, in here. We're not gonna be able to get into all the Old Testament stuff but the general idea is actually pretty, pretty simple. A lot of people rejected Jesus. They didn't want to build their lives around him. But God chose Jesus to be the cornerstone. So if you're part of the church, it starts with him. Now, theologically speaking, there are a lot of implications here. If you flip ahead in your Bible... Um, to uh, just a couple pages to First Peter at the end, Peter calls Jesus the chief shepherd. Do you remember that? The chief shepherd of the sheep. And what that means, if you want to translate, really, is that Jesus is the senior pastor of the church. Like shepherd, pastor, like pastor means shepherd, okay, if you didn't know that. So really, if you call someone pastor, really, they're the shepherd of the sheep. But we're just under shepherds. He is the chief shepherd. He is the senior pastor. Someone was asking if we have a senior pastor at Zoe, and I said, of course, it's me. No, it's not. We don't have a senior pastor. We just have three elders. We have a plurality. But the truth is, Jesus is the senior pastor, and we try to do what he says, and we know what he says because we have his word. It's about Jesus. 
And this means, practically speaking, it's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about our agenda that we're bringing to church. It's about what Jesus wants. We're not to shop for what we want. We are to seek what God wants. And this goes back to the Word, and it goes back to the Word. It always goes back to the Bible. Practically speaking, this means that if we evaluate a church, it means that we should be thinking in biblical categories. And this also means that if we're putting a church, okay, that we're evaluating underneath the word, that we need to put ourselves under the word too. Because we are the church. In fact, if you look at verse 5 again, Peter says that the church is a construction project. I touched on that. Peter says that we are being built up. Okay, there's so much in this verb. It's in the imperfect tense, meaning, implying that there's an ongoing process. It's imperfect, right? It needs to become perfect. We see this elsewhere in Scripture too. Like in our Scripture reading, Paul said that the church builds itself up in love. And this implies at least two things. Okay, this implies one, that the church that is us is by nature imperfect, There is no perfect church. Every church is being built up. And then second, God uses the church to build up the church. He uses other Christians in the church to build you up. See, some people search their whole lives for a church to be a part of. You might know someone like this, and if this is you, I'm not trying to call you out, but just think about it. Just evaluate your own heart. Just think about it. Some people search their whole lives for a church to be a part of. They settle in at one, maybe for a year or two. Maybe they're at one for three or four years. But their whole life story in the church is just going from one church to another to another. You find a church and you really like it at first. And then you get disillusioned and you're like, that church really had problems. And then you look for another one. And there's always something that they find wrong. And... If I can say this, okay, and I try to say this with humility and honesty, is that when I talk to my friends who have kind of been in and out of all these churches, what I've seen is that the problem isn't primarily with these churches. The problem is with them. And I try to tell them that in love, but the problem is with them. And they might say, no, it's not, right? This church, this person sinned against me in this way. Or at this church, some person's kid was mean to my kid and, and that was just really a bad experience for him. Or at this church, right, this one pastor fell into some kind of sin. Or at this church, they weren't very faithful in evangelism. And, and I, I need a church where they're more faithful. The thing is, okay, even though these churches had legitimate issues and we're not excusing those issues, every church has legitimate issues. Every single one, every church is under construction. And the thing also is, if we're sitting under the word ourselves, we should know this. We should expect this. And we should also understand that we are actually called to be part of the building process. Again, right, some churches, they split, and, and some churches, they're heretical maybe, or some churches, maybe you, you had to leave for whatever reason. But I'm just saying, examine your heart. Are you someone who views yourself as part of the problem and as part of the solution? We're called to build the church up and to be built up. In fact, we can't be faithful to Scripture if we're not living out the one another commands of Scripture. You know, love one another or uh, forgive one another or pray for one another. These are the things that make us a light to the world. 
I mean, even this idea of forgiving one another, it implies what? That we're going to sin against one another. If we're never part of the church, then we're just a part of the problem and not a part of the solution. We're not participating in what God is doing through the church. So all this to say, we need to approach the church with a humble attitude. Okay, a humble attitude. Where we understand from the get-go, it's not about what I want. I had to learn this lesson myself, right? Because I'm like, I'm going to plant this church. I'm going to create the church exactly like what I want. But these older pastors said, it's not about what you want. It's not about your, it's not your church. It's not about what we want. It's not about what our vision is. It's about what God wants. And the truth is, and I speak for myself, the truth is I am not myself where God wants me to be. And I need the church to help me grow. We're all under construction and none of us are the architect. You know, sometimes it's the people who are most into the Bible who are the strictest and harshest critics of other Christians in the church. Sometimes it's the people who are most into the Bible who forget sometimes to sit under the Bible themselves. And they love talking about it and arguing about it and rebuking with it. But when they get confronted with how maybe they are not perfect, how they are under construction, they get defensive. And I know that there are people like this because I can be like this. I remember when I was doing college ministry, again, I was talking, I was out eating with a bunch of college students. And uh, one of the, the I, I say kids, but they're probably like 19 20 years old. Um, but she asked me, she said, hey, can you explain the end times to me? And I was like, easy. Right? Can you ask me a hard one next time? Um, but it was really, I was like, okay, I'll try. And I had just started at master. So I was in seminary and she assumed that because I was in seminary, I knew something. But the truth is, in seminary, you learn about the end times at the end, right? So I had just started. I didn't even know anything. I didn't learn anything. But I just started talking. I was like, well, yeah, of course, if you like look at the book of Revelation, you see something about Jesus. And I was just talking about beasts and stuff. And don't get a 666 on your head and all these different things. And, and one student, kind of this young whippersnapper, he was like, I think that's wrong. He's like, what you just said doesn't make sense at all because of this verse, this verse, and this verse. And I remember I was like, how dare this guy? How dare this guy call me out? I am a seminary student. I'm a future pastor of America. And we're, we're talking, and I started going back and forth with this guy, and we started kind of arguing about different things. And afterwards, I remember I was like, man, this guy's so prideful, like trying to call me out. Um, but then I thought about it a little more, and I realized that he was right. Okay, he actually was bringing up some scripture that was contradicting what I was saying. And how did I respond? I didn't say, whoa, I didn't actually know that was in the Bible. Okay, I, I got to rethink it. Instead, what I did was I fought him over it. I got defensive. I was prideful. See, Jesus is the cornerstone. It's not about being right. It's about being right according to him. You see what I'm saying? See, we can be humble and still stand for the truth. How we do it is we're humble before the word. Hey, like I have convictions, but if you bring up the Bible to me and the Bible says something different, then I got to reevaluate my convictions. We sit before the word of God. We fit ourselves to the cornerstone. His word is the blueprint for the church. It changes everything. We stop shopping. We start serving. We stop critiquing. We start changing. 
We stop getting defensive when we get called out for unbiblical actions and attitudes, and we start getting repentant and thankful that God is using his word through his church to accomplish his ends, to sharpen us, to shape us, to make us more like Christ. Here, I will say this. Okay, I think that you guys, you came to Zoe at a good time. Okay, because the church is pretty young. We haven't solidified a lot of our bad habits yet, too much at least. And the church is kind of like a, how shall I say this? Kind of a hard church to go to, if I'm being honest, right? Like, it's not, you know, the nicest. Some of you were here when the AC was broken. It was terrible, right? I felt like it was like a living illustration of like how you want to repent before you die because it's really hot in eternity, you know, or something like that. And it's 1.30, which is hard for a lot of you, especially with kids. Right now, we don't have children's ministry. I mean, it's not a convenient or easy church to go to. We're not going to blow anyone away with our production quality. But the good thing, okay, about all of this is that I think it's been pretty clear that all we have is the Bible. And what I'm thankful for is that a lot of you guys came because of the Bible. Because I know it's not any of this, right? It's the Bible, Now, the reason I bring that up is to encourage you. I'm not trying to, like, slam our church. I'm just trying to tell you what's true. But the reason I bring this up is because inconvenience isn't a value for us. We don't want to meet at 1.30 forever. We would like to meet in the morning, right, where it's easier for the kids. We would like to have AC that works every week of the year. We would like some of these things. We like nicer chairs, Okay, we would like uh, if more gifted musicians came so that we could have like a, a full worship team and that people could use their gifts. And we, we like, I'm cool with all of that. But we need to set the culture now. You see what I'm saying? Because later, there are going to be other reasons, Lord willing, for people to come to church besides the word. But let's make the word. Let's make Christ the cornerstone. Let's always go to him. Let's do that now. Set and keep that culture now. Christ is the cornerstone. And that leads to the final point. God's glory is the goal. God's glory is the goal. See, it's not just that God sets the agenda. God is the agenda. Okay, look at verse 5. Peter said, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, and then go to verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are the house, but we are also the priesthood. Okay, it's kind of a mixed metaphor But if you understand the context, Peter, when he talks about a spiritual house or the house of God, he's drawing on Old Testament imagery. And in the Old Testament, what was God's house? God's house was the temple. It was the temple of God where the priest offered sacrifices. See, now as Christians, a part of this spiritual house, we also have a role to play. We're not just the living stones that make it up. We also are to offer living sacrifices ourselves ourselves. There's so much in here, all of these terms, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation. We could do a sermon on every single one, but again, let's just focus our attention on this idea of priesthood. What are priests? What are priests? 
Okay, I don't think a lot of us hang out with priests a lot. We're Protestant. We're not Catholic. We don't belong to other religions. Maybe you've seen a priest or you've talked to a priest or seen one on TV or something. But we don't have a clear and obvious common understanding of what a priest is as maybe these first century Jewish people did. Here's the thing about priests. They are go-betweens. So you kind of understood back in the day that man cannot just have a relationship with God. There needed to be people who mediated for you, people who offered the sacrifices, people who lived according to a certain standard. So the priests in God's temple in the Old Testament were the ones who were allowed to go into the presence of God, at least to a certain extent. Uh, We're not going to get into that. But they were allowed to kind of mediate, to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. They really were the ones that God put in place to stand between God and man. Now, Peter is saying that every Christian is that, in a sense. That you have direct access. You can read the book of Hebrews. They talk about that. But the church is this new race of people, no longer primarily defined by the flesh, but defined by the spirit. We are a new country, a new nation, no longer bound by borders and these physical walls, but bound by our common faith. And we are the go-betweens. So not only are we supposed to worship and offer sacrifices, but we also are the go-betweens between the world and God. We are evangelists. We are witnesses. We're the ones who are supposed to proclaim the excellencies of God out loud to this world. We're tasked with the ministry of reconciliation, calling sinners back to God on his behalf, evangelism. So put it all together. You see, that, you see everything that the church is supposed to be in this passage. There are three theological reasons for the church's existence. That's what I learned in seminary after I talked to that guy. Everything that the church is supposed to do falls under these three headings. It's growth, right? Spiritual growth, building each other up. Okay, it's equipping you guys. It's what we do here with each other. It's evangelism, right? We're supposed to make disciples of all nations and go out. But ultimately, what everything is for, and the third thing, is worship. It's for the glory of God, right? We grow together, we go together. But all of it is that we would give glory to God together. And we do that directly by singing his praises, but we do that in everything. Whether you eat and drink, remember, do that for the glory of God. So all this to say, we each have a role to play in this church. You have been given a stewardship. God has gifted you in certain ways. He's given you time. He's given you resources. He's giving you energy. He's giving you relationships. And for us, it's not about using those things to build up the brand of Zoe. Who cares about that? It's about you honoring God and using those things to worship him. And Zoe exists to help you do that, to help us do that. I mean, a hypothetical situation we talked about was, you know, what if we have someone leading worship, right? And he's using his gifts and that's his thing. And then we have a new worship leader who shows up who has like the voice of Justin Bieber or something and he's just really good. Um, You might not like Justin Bieber, but it's okay if you don't have good taste. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But anyway, uh, let's say someone shows up who's super good. Do we just kick out that other guy? I don't think we do, right? It's not about finding the best. It's about helping you give your best to God. So we, we could have two worship leaders. That's fine, right? It's about God. It's not about us. It's not about Zoe. 
each of us should be serving in some way, but we're not serving to build the brand. We're serving to glorify the name. And I want to start wrapping this up by pointing out verse 10. Peter ends this, this section by saying, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We're not just a people that is together because, you know, we happen to like the same things. We are God's people. But this is a blessing. It's not a burden. And I say this because church can feel like a burden sometimes. Oh, they always need help. Oh, I got to serve in the nursery again sometimes. I can feel this way as a pastor and I get paid to actually do this. It can feel like a burden, but we got to understand that this whole thing is actually grace. It's mercy. I mean, remember what that student asked me. He said, why should I come to this church? And really the question should have been, why should we want you at this church? (laughs) No offense. And it's not coming from my perspective. Because really, why should God want any of us at his church? Why should he want me to be the pastor? Why should he want you to serve in this way? We're all sinners. None of us deserve it. None of us are like so good that God had no choice but to put us in here. It's all mercy. It's all grace. We all deserve death and eternal damnation and hell. All of us are unworthy. All of us needed Jesus to die for us so that we could get in the door. We needed a sacrifice. We needed to be forgiven. We needed to be reconciled and cleansed. It was all his mercy and his grace. It's not that we have to do these things for church. It's that we get to. You see what I'm saying? Brothers and sisters, church, that there are people that will build you up, that there are people to worship with, that there are people to gather with, that is an amazing blessing from God. It's a gift. It's a stewardship. Don't squander it. Remember who you are. It's kind of like this. In 1985, Texas had this massive litter problem. It was costing the state $20 million a year to pick up trash on the highways. So they tried to do all these things, right? They had signs. They had fines. They did all that. Nothing worked. Someone said it was almost as if Texans viewed littering as their God-given right. So the Texas Department of Transportation turned to this marketing firm in Austin. And these two guys, Mike Blair and Tim McClure, They came up with this slogan, and even if you don't know the story, you know the slogan, don't mess with Texas. It was for littering, and their thought process was Texans love Texas more than any other state loves their state, any other people in their state love their state. I remember Minnesota, I think, tried it, like don't mess with Minnesota, and Texans were hating on it so bad, that's our thing. These guys understood it. They were Texans, they knew And littering fell by 72% in three years just by putting that sign up. You know why? Because Texans believe in this identity that Texas is a special place. And when I'm throwing trash on the ground, it's not just me throwing trash on the ground. It's me messing with this place that I love. And so it should be with us. When a relationship in the church is hard or when you're tired of serving but you're scheduled to help out or when the worship leader is singing a song you don't really like, Remember who you are and remember what this is. When you're tempted to think of yourself as the church's architect or cornerstone, remember who you are and remember what this is. We are the church and we do the things we're called to do because it is a privilege to be the church. Now I'll close with this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's famous for being the pastor who... uh, uh, 
was executed by the Nazis during World War II. Um, but he was a theologian, and he wrote a book called Life Together um, about Christian community. In fact, it's one of the books on Christian community. But in it, he wrote, he said, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than they love the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may ever be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. And then he said, God hates this wishful dreaming because it makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Those who dream of this idolized community demand at the end of the day that it be fulfilled by God, by others, and by themselves. And what he was saying was, we've got to die to our dreams of what church should be like and start loving the church. You and I must die to our dreams of what we think Zoe should be, and I preach to myself. And it's only when we die to our dreams that we can live for what the church actually is in the design and mind of God. It's the people that he has saved for his glory, and we get to be a part of it. So let's be a church that bucks trends. Where no matter how big we get, we'll know each other. Where the pastors will know your names because it's about the people. Where we won't get discouraged or disillusioned by imperfection in the church, but we'll expect it and by the grace of God, we'll work through it. Let's be a church where we evangelize, where we serve, where we give of ourselves. Not to build up Zoe, but because we know who we are and we know who deserves the glory. Let's be that church. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we come before you this afternoon and we just give this church to you. Not that we ever possessed it, that we would give it to you, that you would need us to give it to you, but because in our own sinfulness, in our own pride and selfishness, we hold on to it as if it were ours. So God, I pray that you would help us to have a posture of just letting it go to you, of sacrifice, of giving, of submission. And God, I pray that you would build this church as you see fit, that we would be faithful. I pray that each of us would want to be a part of that, even if not at this church, but at whatever church they are a part of. God, you deserve all of this and more. So we pray this is in your name. Amen. Right now we're going to take communion. And communion is something that Jesus gave the church to do together. It's a time for us to remember the sacrifice that Jesus was for our sin. Um, so hopefully you have the, uh, the cup and the bread. Uh, and I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians Chapter 11, here Paul explains a little bit more about what communion is. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Now, this is something that was given to the church. If you aren't a Christian or you're just working through some stuff and you don't know if you're a Christian, I, I would say it's okay not to take it, okay? The Bible does talk about judgment upon those who take it in an unworthy way, okay? So don't feel forced or pressured. But if you are a Christian, now is a time to really focus and remember what Jesus did for you. Okay, so I'm going to give you just a minute um, to pray a little bit and, and just to prepare your heart. Part of it, I think, should be confession, okay? Confession uh, of whatever's going on in your life and just uh, asking for forgiveness if you need to. And then also just thanking Jesus, thanking God for what he has done, his salvation. So I'll let you just spend this time with you and God, and then I'll lead us in taking the elements together.